When my son was maybe two, two and a half years old, I was on the floor with him, playing for a while. And then at some point he was playing with his blocks, maybe half turned away from me, me sitting maybe three feet away. And he was singing or humming happily. And he went on for some time. He was kind of half turned away from me, not paying any attention to me, and seemed absorbed in his blocks. And I decided that he didn't really need me anymore, and I could do something else. So I got up to walk away and his singing stopped. So I sat back down. I thought I wasn't needed. All I was doing was accompanying him, watching, observing, being nearby. And he was happy. The last tetrad of Anapanasati is to sit nearby and watch, to, to observe anupasana, anupasanati. And all four tetrads, or all four exercises or instructions, um, are instructions in observing. And this is the first time in the Anapanasati where observing is the instruction. All the previous instructions are a little bit more active. The first two have to do with knowing, the breathing, recognizing qualities, characteristics of breathing, tuning in, familiarizing ourselves with the breathing. And then there's experiencing the body. And then there's the relaxing the body. Maybe experiencing the body is more subtle. Relaxing is being pretty busy compared to what, you know, just sitting here. And then there's experiencing well-being, two steps of it, experiencing joy and happiness. And then there's experiencing the bodily formation, the mental formations. And then there's relaxing the mental formations. And then there's knowing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, and liberating the mind. So here it's all these you know activities, instructions. But then we come to the last tetrad and it's observing, just observe. And I see the act of observing when done in a simple, straight, full way to be closely akin 
to an act of trusting. Maybe they're not the same, but to be willing, to be trusting enough, to be allowing enough, to be willing, to do nothing, but to observe, to see clearly what's here. In a kind of a way of observing that maybe doesn't even involve a certain kind of knowing, maybe more active cognitive functioning of recognition. Very simple being with. And it's in this last uh, tetrad that um, insight begins, the process of insight. And I'd like to jump ahead to the last instructions of this tetrad, the conclusion of Anapanasati. And as I said earlier, it's all four tetrads end with some activity that's in the family of letting go, relaxing, liberating. And now in this one, it's relinquishment. Wonderful word, relinquishment. The Pali in its roots, the Buddhist language in its roots, the meaning means something like to hand, hand over, give over, hand away. There's a little bit of a active quality in relinquishment. It's more than just letting go. And I think of it as an act of wisdom. The insight leads to wisdom. And the wisdom, having the wisdom to be finished with something. To be done. No longer really no longer committed, no longer dedicated, no longer fooled by some of the attachments, some of the delusion that we can live with. And I see this as a very mature part. It's more mature than simply letting go. This person can let go because they've been told to. A person can let go because there's relief in letting go. But to to make it as kind of a decision, a kind of a choice of sorts, to be, be done with this, be finished. This I no longer stand behind this. I'm no longer into this. Some activity, some way of being might continue because of habit and conditioning, but clearly our hearts are no longer in it. To relinquish our commitment to greed, to relinquish our commitment to aversion, hostility, to relinquish our commitment to our conceit, to relinquish our deluded relationship with our thoughts,
to relinquish. And so the last uh, instruction says, one observes the relinqu one observes relinquishment. And I, I love this because the, obs the observing is just to see. It doesn't involve a doing. It's not active. And the relinquishment is not presented as an instruction to relinquish. It's to observe the relinquishment that happens. And now we're into this kind of domain where wisdom is operating within us. That is not something that we can take ownership from, for, and not something that we feel like, you know, we're the agent of. I'm not the doer of it. I'm not even responsible in a certain way, because I am responsible is a kind of mental construct. Conceit is a mental construct. It's useful, it has its place. It can be defended and justified, the self, for sure. But when you're really settled and peaceful, why bother? Why get all excited about this self? Especially when there's something other than self-concern, self-preoccupation, self, me, myself, and mine that can operate with wisdom. Perhaps there's something inside of you, perhaps there's something within you that's wiser than you are. Wouldn't that be nice? And so this relinquishment, not as a requirement, not as something you're supposed to do, but something that arises, something which wisdom that occurs, a decision of sorts, that arises at the end of these 16 steps. And you've seen now already in this course of this retreat so far, you know, it's not like a, it's not like it's a simple thing to sit down and in 16 minutes go through the 16 steps and, and then, then you can go home. You know, it's, uh, we're talking about training and developing the mind in some of the most, I would, I would think, some of the most important and profound ways we can develop the mind. Free the mind. And this wonderful process leading to a kind of natural wisdom that exists, that's it's a capacity that's within us, that's available within us, that we observe, but we don't do. And this wonderful kind of for me, I sense it's a wonderful kind of juxtaposition of there's still some kind of activity that we give ourselves to, kind of, observing, but there's so little conceit, so little sense of me doing it, just there's a doing of it. And in that space, there's something which is clearly not me operating, that we make space for, that we allow for. And so this process of insight coming to wisdom, involving wisdom, is the kind of the activity of the, or the, the happening of the fourth tetrad. And before I kind of get into more about it, I want to say something about the value of the first three tetrads.
part of the, what we're doing there is to stabilize the mind, to steady the mind, so that the agitations of the mind, the spinning of the mind, the centrifugal force outwards of the mind, steadies, quiets down. So there's stability in the mind. And as maybe I said earlier, it's kind of like if you want to look through a telescope and you're looking at the moon and you hold the telescope in your hands, you, you're not really going to be have a good shot at the moon. You're going to wobble so much. But if you put the tripod on a, if you put the telescope on a tripod, there's stability and then that lens can really do its job and be still. You can see, you know, tune in, focus on the moon. So the same thing with us. So we want to cultivate stability, steadiness, a, a ballast, like the ballast of a boat that keeps the boat from tipping over, a sense of strength that comes with stability. And just staying focused on breathing, the first two steps. One of the, one of the reasons to come back to it over and over again and keep it going as a thread throughout Anapanasati is Breath meditation, for many people, is a stabilizing force, a focusing force, steadying force, calming force. So to cultivate stability. Another function of uh, these first three tetrads is to cultivate a sense of well-being. Happiness, joy, delight, gladness. I prefer the word well-being because as it's sufficiently vague, I don't get tripped up around it. You know, it's like, you know, I don't, it's a little bit hard for me to get attached to the concept of well-being, whereas joy I can get a little bit complicated in my relationship. So just I leave it at well-being. But cultivate a sense of well-being. And it turns out that we're not, it's not like Buddhist practice hedonistic, that we're supposed to just, you know, have a good time and that's it. But rather, the, the well-being creates very good conditions for the deepening of the practice and for the awakening of the wisdom mind. Partly because to have a sense of well-being, there's a softening, there's a loosening, there's a lightening of the heaviness of mind or the contraction of the mind or the, the stuckness of the mind. There's a softening, there's a receptivity, there's more, more sense of fluidity with our experience in ourselves. It can start giving us a, a sense of how we interrupt the well-being, how we bottle it up or block it with conceit, for example, or with desires and hindrances and stuff like that. And so it kind of begins softening and mellowing and helps with this kind of settling down, but to have a sense of well-being. And the third function of the first tetrads is not explicit in it, but it's explicit in other places in the suttas, is to develop confidence, to develop a sense of inner confidence, strength, a sense of a certain kind of agency, a certain kind of personal independence, a certain kind of um, 
you know, ki- kind of a self-worth without the self part. <laughs> Certain part of self-importance, but without the self part. It's, you know, it's a little bit hard to kind of put it, you know, into language exactly, but, you know, to have a, um, uh, to be able to look upon oneself in a positive regard or consider oneself well and with confidence. And the important part of Buddhist spirituality is to cultivate these three. Stability, well-being, and confidence. These are the basis, the support, for going deeper into the practice, for insight, deep insight to occur, and for relinquishment. It's a lot more, a lot cooler to relinquish, to let go, to let go of some of the things that are held as the most precious things for us, to have the wisdom and the see value and to let go. When we have this great sense of stability and well-being and confidence, if we don't have that, if we have the opposite, if everything is, you know, like chaotic and out of control and we hardly know where we're going to sleep for the night and we just feel miserable and then the Buddhists tell us that life is suffering I'm home <laughs> these people know how to suffer well I'm, I know about that so let's I'll suffer even better than them but you know so this idea of you know, just to just be miserable, it kind of doesn't really create good conditions for something deeper to operate. It's just too hard to tap into it sometimes. And if there's no sense of confidence, kind of a personal confidence, uprightness, it can be much more challenging to want to or to be able to or have value in putting down our conceit, putting, putting down our constant self-referential thinking and self-referential concerns. And the paradox of this self-confidence supports being selfless in a beautiful way. So the the, these three qualities we cultivate then support the insight. And the three insights that are championed as being the core insights of insight meditation are the opposite of the things we're cultivating. Isn't that nice? So we cultivate the opposite to, you know, so the opposite of stability is to, is to have the insight into change, into impermanence. The opposite of well-being is to have insight into dukkha, into suffering or unsatisfactoriness. The opposite of uh, confidence is not-self. 
and it, it makes I think a lot more sense, or maybe more 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 understandable, more more attractive. These uh, to ha- to really get into and see and these three these insight into three characteristics, if we come along with this good foundation for it. Without that foundation, the three characteristics can be destabilizing and disorienting, and even for some people, frightening. So the first exercise in the fourth tetrad is observing impermanence. And of the three characteristics, this one's really the core one. And the other two follow from the first uh, insight into impermanence, into change, in constancy. And it's not unusual for religious teachers, philosophers all over the world to emphasize the impermanence of life. You can't step into the river twice. You'll read if you do go and study Greek philosophy. And um, and in fact, uh, in Buddhism, in a sense, the Buddhism talks about life being a stream, or that uh, there's a stream to enter into, a stream of life that flows. And you can't really flow, you know, so in the stream, if you're, if you're tied to the pier, or if you have this heavy anchor that you throw overboard and from your canoe and the anchor snags on a rock and you don't go anywhere. You have, you know, you have to let go with the stream. You have to be in the flow of impermanence of change, not hold back, not resist it. An image that I like for how some people live is everything's always changing dramatically and fully. You come down to the river with a bucket, and then you scoop up a bucket of water from the river, and then you walk to town and tell people, look, I have the river here. This is the river. There's no river in the bucket. It's water from the river. To pick up a concept, to freeze and hold on to some idea, it's kind of like holding a bucket. But sometimes it gets worse from that because sometimes you're going down the canoe, you have a canoe full of empty buckets and rope, and you scoop up water, and you, then you put the bucket in the, in the stream and drag it behind you. And the, you know, you do four, five, ten, you know, bucketfuls of water and you drag it behind. As you, it's a lot of, I guess called, I guess a water drag. <laughs> It doesn't make for very pleasant canoeing. So this idea of holding on to these ideas and concepts, I think I've sometimes thought that this, you know, if we were going to define, if Buddhists were going to define self, then what is the self? So if we dare, as a Buddhist, dare define it. My favorite definition is wind drag, <laughs> water drag. So observing change and impermanence. <clears throat> but now it's, it's the 13th step of Anapanasati. 
it isn't that we're expected to really have a deep insight into change when we first start practicing. And we're not directed to look for it. We simply observe it. It's like we're creating the conditions, the stability of the mind, the steadiness of the mind, the, building, the, the, the sense of well-being that allows us to be willing, trusting, to be present here. To not feel like we have to get someplace else or avoid the present moment or be impatient with it. A willingness just to be here and have a sharp mind so you can really see and be present, not in a vague, general way, but to really kind of have to kind of be able to kind of, you know, really kind of have the mind clear, see clearly, observe clearly. And so one of the things I talked about yesterday about the liberating the mind relaxing the constructs, liberating the mind, is um, we're relaxing or liberating ourselves from the frequent tendency to see the world through the filter of our concepts and ideas. To sit quietly and experience one's hand maybe with the eyes closed, without any concepts of hand. And if you do that, then, you know, it's much of how we think of the hand then is a memory, but in the direct experience of the hand, in a kind of way, there is no hand. In the experience of it, there's only tingling, vibration, warmth, coolness, tightness, looseness, heaviness, pressure, lightness. There's particular sensations. And if you, we tune into those particular sensations, then we'll see that they, they're, they're like sparks that come and go and move around as a dance of them in our experience. Whereas if I think about my hand, You know, my hand is inadequate. I have a wrong hand. I was born with these hands and they're bad hands and I shouldn't have had these hands and this and that. I, then I, there's a filter, an idea, concepts I have of hand. The hand becomes kind of an unchanging phenomena. It's just this thing. Concepts lend themselves to see the world more in permanence. This is how it is. But if we, re if we can relax enough, settle in enough, relax the mental constructs to experience what's here, we get this dance of sensations. Turns out that if we have enough, if we, you know, if we do this process and really settle in and get interested enough to just tune into our direct experience, there's a lot more change going on than most people realize. Constant changing. I think that as we're sitting here this evening, it's getting darker in the room. It's changing for us. I hear the hum of the air conditioner. 
kind of has an oscillating, for me, oscillating sound. It doesn't quite disappear, but it's kind of, I feel the changing nature of that sound. I feel the changing wind on my skin. It's not a constant blowing on the skin, unless I sit here thinking, uh-oh, that wind, it's blowing, it's just constantly blowing, it's only blowing, I'm going to get sick. I'm not worried about it, but, but, uh, but you know, then I'm kind of, then I made it a thing. But if I really stay and just feel, it's actually feel, it's kind of quite lovely, the cool breeze, and you can feel how the wind moves up and down my arm, different parts of my arm, kind of feel at different times, and the hairs kind of feel a little bit tingly. And it comes and goes, and it's kind of this changing thing. In fact, what makes it pleasant, this wind of the air conditioner, is in fact not only coolness, but the changing sensations of coolness, how they move and change up and down my arm, and just now it got stronger for some reason, then it got weaker. And it isn't so much that we have to think that we're supposed to see impermanence or we have to kind of force ourselves to see it. There's no forcing. There's no like we're now looking intentionally. I've known some people who think they're supposed to see impermanence in doing Vipassana practice and they're chasing it. They're kind of almost like thinking themselves into being able to see it. It's more like we settle back, we're set, we have stability and relax and we're just here. And because we don't overlay our experience with thoughts and desires and pro projections and all these things, it's what's left. And what's left is our direct experience, the simplicity of just now. Because of all the sense of relaxation, relaxing mental constructs and well-being, it's not so bad to sit there in the simplicity of our direct experience. It can actually be quite absorbing. Some people find they get completely absorbed in this experience of the sensory world of things coming and going. The purpose of it, the purpose of seeing impermanence, there is a purpose. It isn't just for its own sake. And on this path of liberation, the purpose is to help us be liberated, to help us loosen and let go of some of the deepest holdings, some of the deepest fears, some of the deepest contractions, some of the deepest hurts, some of the deepest identities that we are holding on to and live by. Some of them are so deep we don't even know they're there until we get really quiet and still and concentrated. Some of them which can just seem to be the nature of life, it's just part of the operating system. Never any questioning of it. But to, to, um, there's something about seeing the flow and the changing and the inconstant nature of phenomena if experiences it's occurring, to live in the stream and flow with the stream that supports, helps the stable mind, stable, settled, well-being mind, 
to begin to relax, let go, loosen up, thaw, that which is frozen inside of us can thaw, that which we're braced, the bracing of our body and our life relaxes, the grip that we have, oh, and sometimes we don't even know what we're gripping, but the grip we have can begin to release. There's something about seeing change and impermanence that can be very powerful. One of the ways it's, this helps letting go is that um, it can be satisfying to see everything flowing and changing. And then when we pluck that, or when we contract around something, or lose that because we've, we've kind of latched on in something, like, you know, if maybe I sit here and I have a little twitch in my knee, and then I latch onto that, and then I spend the next 10 minutes retrospectively thinking about that twitch. What was that? Certainly that must mean that I have degenerate muscles disease. And, you know, and I wonder if anybody here is a doctor who would be willing to look at my twitch. And we're living in this world of twitch. And maybe it takes 10 minutes to realize that we've gotten preoccupied in that, that twitch that once upon a time happened 10 minutes ago. And then finally wake up to this universe I created of thoughts about doctors and twitches and plans for IRC to save, always have five rooms preserved only for doctors <laughs> so I can be safe. And as it goes on and on. And, um, and then I finally wake up, and I thought, that, that, that wasn't very satisfying. That, you know, that, that was kind of a loss, kind of a, that was a kind of diminishment compared to the, a certain kind of fullness or presence with the flow of sensations. So there's something about that flow and the changing nature and being with it and seeing it that um, can show us the dissatisfaction, the unsatisfactory nature of leaving that flow, of blocking it, or getting caught in some something that gives, freezes something. Another thing that change see, helps us to see is that um, literally, it's actually not possible to cling to anything because Clinging, we only unless you're at the edge of half, in the edge of a cliff, holding onto the railing. The mental clinging we do, we're only ever clinging to ideas, ideas of things, ideas of people, ideas of pleasure, ideas of things. And those ideas are so ephemeral. When my sons were young, sometimes we go to these kids museums, discovery museums for kids. And they would have this wonderful thing, it's kind of like a hologram. It was made from mirrors, like a box with mirrors. And uh, this reflect an object in such a way that there would be this object floating in the air, 
it's like kind of remarkable to watch something, you know, floating in the air. And so you take your hand to poke it or try to grab it, and it's not there. Nothing's there. You know, grab it, you know, pull it out of the box, and come out empty-handed. But it's still there. Because it's not really there. It's somehow an optical illusion with the mirrors that they have. So many, it turns out, and maybe it's a bit embarrassing for people who are professional clingers. <laughs> that we're actually never clinging to anything. <laughs> we think we are. We think we are. The actual movement of grasping in the mind, the actual clinging in the mind, is the idea of things. Now the things that we, the things that we're concerned with might exist. The people that we might be concerned with might exist. But when we actually cling, what we're holding on to is concepts, ideas, and mental constructs. And how much substance does a mental construct have? How much substance does a thought have? How much weight is it? How, you know, how solid is it? Is it, you know, does, it's kind of like a hologram. Or maybe, who knows, we don't really know what a thought is, except maybe thoughts are made with mirrors. <laughs> they talk about mirror neurons. There's all mirrors in there. We try to grab it and... And so there's something about this deep insight into impermanence arising and passing the flux and change of phenomena that teaches us, shows us that there's, you know, that cl it's actually clinging doesn't work. It can be kind of disorienting at times. I've had this experience of wanting to cling to something in meditation, and by the time my mental mind, mental, my mind's hand got there, it was already gone. Kind of like the clown in the, in the circus that bends down to pick up the ball, but then its foot kicks it further ahead. So it's not there when you grab. So it's kind of, you know, it gets kind of fun in there. You can have a fun time once you start getting into the insights, you know, seeing change and impermanence. And And there's something about, maybe I'm repeating myself, but something about seeing the impermanence, the changing flow of experience that highlights the disadvantages of clinging, highlights disadvantage of holding on tight, highlights disadvantages of addictions of the mind, highlights the disadvantages of conceit and being caught up in ideas of me, myself, and mine. And it's this clear observation of it the clear kind of, you know, experience of it. Not the thoughts, not the logic of it, not the philosophy of it, and not because someone tells you, but because as the mind settles into this world of change and impermanence, it just becomes obvious. We observe it. We observe that, oh yeah, and if we settle into it, wisdom begins to operate. 
wisdom about freedom, wisdom about well-being and suffering, wisdom about freedom and bondage, wisdom about compassion and hostility, I guess, maybe the opposite of compassion. And it kind of becomes, it's not something we have to think about or read about or believe in. It's not a belief system. It's, an, it's, an, it's something that arises out of the observation of a settled, stable mind here. So the 13th step of Anapanasati is observing impermanence, observing inconstancy, how things are inconstant, they rise and they pass, they appear and disappear. Don't go rushing out to do that now. It's a 13th step. Go through the steps, maybe starting at the beginning, over and over again. Be simple. Don't be so ambitious. Don't be in a hurry. Settle in. Different times you'll be at different places in these steps. Tune in and figure out what's needed or where, where, where you're at. Maybe sometimes you sit down and it's obvious there's a sense of well-being and you can sit there experiencing that. Other times it's obvious that there's these mental constructs going on and that's like the name of the game and maybe just easier just to relax them. Other times it seems like the thing to do is to gladden the mind. So different things are at different times, but just do your practice. Simple, being with the breath, breathing in, breathing out. That's the core practice for Anapanasati. And as you do that, you know, you'll discover where you're at and you'll kind of figure out what's the appropriate thing. Sometimes it's appropriate to go through the steps sequentially. Sometimes you just tune into how it's like, what's happening for you as you're being, breathing in, breathing out, and you get a different sense of what's, you know, what's going on. Do your practice. And then as you settle in more and more and relax the mental constructs, the third tetrad is getting concentrated, Compose, settled more. You liberate yourself from the hindrances, begin liberating yourself from the tyranny of concepts. Then at some point, when you're here, settled, there'll be, you'll have a revelation. Revelation will happen. The gift of a revelation. I think of it that way. And that the gift is you'll start seeing, feeling, sensing, how things are changing, flowing, moving, arising, passing, appearing, disappearing, coming, going. Instant by instant, moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, all kinds of ways. And to observe that, to take that in, to let yourself be informed by that, to observe it so maybe it's kind of is registered in a deeper way. 
don't observe it casually, but it's like almost as if you're absorbing the observation, the knowing of change. Settle into it more, almost as so you can get even more concentrated, or that becomes your world that you flow in, or be in, or drop into. Maybe the world you disappear in. It's like looking at a fire, you know, the fireplace, and just you can look at it for hours, perhaps, and just look at the change. And it's because it's changing and moving that somehow, if, if it was unchanging, just flame, it wouldn't be so interesting. Or the, you know, it can be mesmerizing to watch the river go by again because it's changing and moving. Or it can be been hours, you know, on the beach looking at the waves coming and going and coming and going. So to kind of enter into that world of the changing nature of, of breathing, coming and going of breath, coming and go of the, of the smaller sensations within each in-breath and each out-breath. Let yourself get into it. And in its time, when, it, when the system and the, the place of wisdom inside of you is ready, it will get born, it'll rise, it'll appear. Something, in, believe it or not, something inside of you that is wiser than you are. How do you get out of the way? How do you make room for this deeper wisdom to operate? So it can be your partner and companion. Breathing in, observing impermanence. Breathing out, observing change. Breathing in, observing inconstancy. Breathing out, observing the coming and going of phenomena. Mm -hmm. 